Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts. For we know that we have a wonderful privilege to come together and worship you corporately. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to ourselves to where we did not desire this, but that you have put within our heart a desire to worship the true and living God. We come to you asking that you would forgive us of our many sins, for we know that we sin daily against you and that we need your forgiveness and grace to cover those sins. We thank you for Christ and his willingness to come to this earth and to die so that we might have life, to live a holy life so that we might have righteousness. We pray, Father, that you would give us greater understanding of your love that you have lavished upon us in sending Christ and creating us for your pleasure. We pray, Father, that as we study your word this day, that you would teach us by your spirit, for we know that all is vain unless your spirit comes to give us the wisdom and knowledge that we need so that we might rightly apply your word to our life. We pray, Father, for the many that are not here today due to sickness. We pray that your healing hand would be upon their body, that you would be pleased to restore their health quickly so that they might return to worship with us. We pray for those that are away, that you would watch over them and guide them and protect them. Bless them where they worship this day and bring them back to us quickly. We pray for those that would not be here due to lack of concern for their own need of worship and fellowship. We pray that you would work in their life and bring conviction as only your spirit can so that they might not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. We pray for the gospel that is proclaimed throughout the world this day. We pray that many would come into your kingdom and that your children would be sanctified by your word so that they might honor you with their lives and all that they do. Again, we pray that you would bless our time together, and this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 12, and we'll pick up where we left off with verse 28 and read through verse 37. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came and asking, heard, having heard them reason together, perceived that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offering and sacrifice. 
So when Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him. Have you ever considered what question would you ask Jesus if you had the privilege and honor to stand before him? What would be your question? We have had four questions, including today, asked of Jesus as we have looked at these sermons over the past month, and we have seen many different questions. As I've stated before, I don't think I would ask any of these first three questions that were asked by the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the scribes. But this question that is before us today, this fourth question by this scribe, is a good question. And this particular scribe seems to be sincere and impressed with who Jesus is. These questions that we have here are a fulfillment of the prophecy found in Psalms 2.2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Now the reason why we know that this is the fulfillment of that prophecy is because Peter tells us in the sermon in Acts chapter 4, 25 through 28, he quotes that particular verse and says that it was fulfilled by Jesus. Now this scribe was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. Matthew calls him a lawyer. Of course, we might not like that. They were given the respect of the title of rabbi, which means great one, which they eagerly accepted in their pride. And we have him coming to Jesus to ask this particular question. So we could say that he was a theologian. We could even say that he would more like a professor, a doctorate, having a doctorate of our day, possibly teaching in a seminary. Now, though this scribe was sent by the Sanhedrin in attempt to discredit Jesus, and the reason why we know that is reading the parallel Gospels, It says that he came to test Jesus, so he was sent by the uh, Sanhedrin to test Jesus. But he seems to be more honest than the others that have come before Jesus. He had overheard the other conversations, as we see there in verse 28 when it says, Then one of the scribes came, having heard them reason together. So he had been listening to the others come up and ask the questions that they asked of Jesus. Now the question that all mankind must ask at some point in their life is, What am I made for? Why did God allow me to come into this earth? What is the purpose of my existence? We've all contemplated that at some time in our life. And now, we see in Genesis 1.26 that we are told that mankind was created in the image of God. We know that. Therefore, if God has created us in His image, man has an obligation. And that obligation is to be like God. He did not create us in His image to do our own thing, to live completely different from Him. He created us to be like our Creator. 
But what does this mean? What does this require of you and me? Well, the Pharisees tried to address this by coming up with 613 laws. 248 of those laws were positive, and 365 were negative. Now, some of them were very easy to keep. Some of those negative ones do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. That'd be an easy one to keep, right? Or do not pass your children through the fire of Molech. I think that's another one that would be easy to keep. Now, sometimes you may think that you'd want to do that, but I hope you don't. Men must not wear women's clothes. I I don't think I'd have any problem with those first three. I think I could keep those easily. What about the positive ones? Well, each man must give half a shekel annually. Leave gleaming for the poor in the field. Remember in Ruth and Boaz, Boaz left the gleaming so that the poor could have it. And return a lost object. So see, a lot of their 613 laws that they had were very easy to keep. Now, some scholars say that the Pharisees listed 200 laws that had to be followed daily if you were going to be able to get in heaven. If you didn't follow these 200 laws, over 200 laws, and you wished to be saved... You couldn't be. You had to follow them. Now, I don't know what those 200 laws were. I haven't looked that up, but I'd be interested to see what those 200 laws were. Now, the Pharisees saw these 613 laws as a fence built around the Ten Commandments. In other words, if you didn't break these 200, I mean, 613 laws, then you definitely would not break the Ten Commandments. That's what they were trying to do, were protect the Ten Commandments. Now, Scripture teaches that all human beings have the Ten Commandments written on their heart. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that man suppresses the truth. Man denies the truth. He rejects it. And therefore he does what? He does what is right in his own eyes. He lives out his own evil desires because he's born a sinner and left to himself, he remains a lost sinner. But yet at conversion, when, when God saves us, the law is renewed in our heart. And as a result, man seeks to love God's law. As David expressed it in Psalms 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So when someone's heart is changed, he now loves God and he now loves his law. And of course, Jesus came and he taught the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained clearly that the Ten Commandments are important for our living in this world, knowing how to love God and how to love our fellow man. Do you understand that our earthly happiness, our eternal salvation directly depends on our getting this right? Understanding what God requires of us is of utmost importance. 
And the way we learn that of what God requires of us is going to His Word because He's told us in His Word what He requires of us. Peter quotes Leviticus 19.20 in 1 Peter and he says, Be ye holy even as I the Lord am holy. The writer Hebrews says in 12.14, Without which no one will see the Lord. And he tells us how important holiness is. So how are we to be holy? In other words, how are we to be God-like is the question that we must answer. Well, this particular passage gives us the answer to that question. And I want us to study this passage and I want us to learn how God would have us to love Him and love our neighbor. We must realize that one of the reasons God has allowed these questions that we have there at the temple on Tuesday after He had entered into Jerusalem with the triumphant entry, and he's asked these four questions. God has allowed these questions to be asked so that we might benefit from them. God is able to bring good out of the evil plans of man. The evil plans of man was try to trick Jesus, try to test Jesus, try to embarrass Jesus. They weren't able to do that. Jesus succeeded every time in making them look foolish. But they're also here so that we might learn, that we might have the wisdom of Christ to be able to deal with life in individuals. Now first the question is asked, which is the first commandment of all? Which is the greatest commandment is what he's wanting to know. And this is a good question as I've mentioned. His interest was in God's commandments. He had been taught from childhood how important God's commandments were. And parents need to teach their children the Ten Commandments. You need to cause your children to memorize the Ten Commandments. I think that's very important. I can remember our our first daughter being taught the Ten Commandments when we were in Brookhaven. I think it was five years old. And we had a school program that evening. And my wife and her. They left early and we were coming later so that they could get to the program. And and she was going over the Ten Commandments with my daughter and all of a sudden she sees blue lights in the rear view mirror and she has to pull over. She, she was speeding, didn't realize it because she was quizzing her on the Ten Commandments. And I was thinking to myself, isn't that something? You're doing the Ten Commandments and you break one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> but it's important that we drill God's Word into our children's heart. I mean, now we have to keep in mind that these religious leaders were convinced that it was through keeping the law that they would obtain heaven. And they were constantly arguing over which of the commandments was the greatest. And the scribe may have thought to himself, well, if I find out from Jesus what the greatest commandment is, then I can focus on that commandment and keep it and not really worry about the other commandments because if I keep the greatest, that ought to get me into heaven. That may have been his thought. I don't know. Now, Jesus pointed out in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, he says, 
Woe to you, scribes, and that's what is here, and Pharisees. Now, they were both, scribes were Pharisees, but the scribes were the ones with the doctrine. You had other Pharisees that didn't have the doctrine. He calls them hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, you keep the lighter commandments, but you are missing the more weightier commandments. He doesn't say don't do the lighter ones. No, he says you better emphasize the more weightier commandments. Don't simply observe the small duties by seeking to be exact in, in paying the tithes and, and boasting that you've given a tithe. Remember uh, in the parable of the uh, publican and the uh, Pharisee. He stands up and what he's doing is prayer. He boasts about tithing in his prayer. Now Jesus doesn't say don't tithe, but he said you need to emphasize the more weightier. Don't omit the weightier things in life because that's what the Pharisees were doing. I mean, it was easy for them, as I mentioned earlier, it's easy for them not to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. It was easier for them to not give their children to Molech. All of these things, those were easy things to do. But he's saying, emphasize the heavier things, judgment and mercy and faith. They are the weightier matters of the law. Those things that reveal inward holiness in the heart. And those are the things that Jesus taught which were more important. The obedience that is better than sacrifice or tithe. Judgment is referred to, preferred to over sacrifice. To be just in your tithing, but then to cheat and to defraud your brother is to mock God and to deceive others. So Jesus is emphasizing that the law is important, but there's some law that is more important than other law. Now, second, Jesus answers the question to this scribe there in verses 29 through 31. When he gives the commandment of the Old Testament. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. Is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus reveals to them quickly the most important one. He doesn't hesitate, but he quickly answers his question and he responds perfectly and absolutely to him. Now what is this? Well, we read it again in our Old Testament reading this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. It's called the Shema, Israel's Creed. They would quote this creed three times a day to remind themselves of their duty. Now, we see that Jesus is emphasizing again what they already knew, but they had forgotten. Who God is and what God requires of them. 
Again, this was driven into the Jewish child's heart at a very early age. So Jesus begins to answer the question by stating the identity of God. Now, all good Jews knew the identity of God. They knew that there was only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They knew that. But Jesus is reminding them of his identity. He says that the greatest commandment is moral, not civil, not ceremonial, but moral. That it's man's duty to love this one God, this true God, because he is supreme. So therefore, this is the supreme commandment. This commandment flows out of the great truth of who God is. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 first. For verse 5 is a commandment that flows from our love for God. So therefore, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of who God is, will cause us, therefore, to know that we are to love this God. So man must understand first and foremost who God is so that he sees that God is worthy of his love, worthy of his worship. Until man sees that God is sustainer, creator, almighty, sovereign, savior, that God is unique, the most most unique being of all. Until man sees that, he really doesn't understand his duty. I can remember years ago, 37 years ago, when Dr. Tom Nettles, who stood in this pulpit two weeks ago, began to teach at Briarwood Baptist Church. And I sat there and I listened to him, and I never heard anyone teach like he taught on the sovereignty of God. I don't know if I'd ever remembered hearing someone teach a sermon on the sovereignty of God. He didn't teach just one sermon on sovereignty of God. He taught six months on the sovereignty of God. And it was amazing to me. I never heard anything like that. And when I had the right understanding of who God is, it caused me to worship God more adequately. And it's so important that we teach people who God is, that He is Creator, Sustainer, Almighty, Sovereign God. He is unique. I mean, why would anyone want to worship the God that some preachers present? One who is helpless, powerless, subject to man, doesn't know the future, He sits in heaven and he just simply wrings his hand and simply watches. You say, well, no, nobody believes in a God like that. There's more people than you realize that believe in a God like that. A number of scholars in 1994, after studying, came up with what is called open theism. Open theism is the thesis that because God loves us and desires that we freely choose to reciprocate that love, 
He has made his knowledge of and plans for the future conditional upon our actions. That's what they believe. In other words, the future is based upon our actions, not what God has ordained. Now, if you think that through, you'll see how ridiculous that is. It's hard to believe that scholars came up with this. Now, here's what they say. Though God is omniscient, in other words, God knows everything, God doesn't know what we will freely choose in the future. Now, does that make sense to you? God's omniscience, He knows everything, but He doesn't know what you're going to do in the future. That's what open theism teaches. Though He's all-powerful, He has chosen to invite us to freely collaborate with Him in governing and developing His creation. There by allowing us freedom to dwarf His hopes for us. In other words, they're saying we can trump God. God may have this plan for us, but He's going to allow us to dwarf His plans if we choose to. Now, while open theism affirms that God knows all truth that can be known, they claim that there simply are not yet truths about what will occur. In other words, it's open, undetermined future. Alternatively, there are such truths, but these truths cannot be known by anyone, including God. And didn't they say earlier that God was omniscient? That God knows all things? But then they, they, at the end, they say that not even God can know some of the things that happen in the future. The sad thing about this is that Clark Pinnock was one of the major opponents of open theism. Clark Pinnock began as a conservative. He was a Calvinist. He even taught at New Orleans Seminary in the 60s. Then he went to Trinity Seminary, another conservative seminary, And then he departed henceforth and began to slide down the slippery slope. In his early days, he wrote an excellent book called A Defense of Biblical Infallibility. But sadly, he ended up denying everything that he had said in that book and led him to being one of the men that came up with the idea of open theism. Now, one problem is that these words of Jesus are so familiar to us that they have lost their revolutionary impact that had upon this scribe and his apostles on this occasion. I mean, they thought to themselves when Jesus answered this question, wow, this is amazing. How does he always come up with such an awesome answer? What wisdom, what knowledge he possesses. That's how they thought. That's how they were reacting. And Jesus is saying that loving God is the leading affection of the soul. And if this isn't presented, that which is most blessed to us, and if we don't accept it, then we continue in our sin. Listen to what Calvin said. We learn from this 
that God does not rest satisfied with outward appearance of works, but chiefly demands the inward feelings that from a good root, good fruit may grow. One commentator said, It is this law that keeps all other law keeping from becoming legalism. Now look at what John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. John writes in his epistle, By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now once we begin to understand the fullness of God's revelation, it will be very natural and obvious that this almighty, sovereign God deserves our love. Everything that we are, He is worthy of it. But we're often like the prodigal son. We take all the good things that He has blessed us with and we waste them on our riotous living and selfishness. Seeking to please the flesh instead of seeking to please God with what He has blessed us with. I mean, left to ourselves, we will not and do not love God as commanded. Instead of loving God, we love self. And hate God. Now, some who sit here this morning, you say, what, what? I don't love God, but I don't, I don't hate God. I mean, I just don't want to be submissive to Him as Lord over my life. I, I want my freedom. I want to be able to do what I want to do. I want to have my fun. I want to live as I want to live. I don't really hate God, though. It's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture clearly tells us that we either love God or we either hate Him. Now, you're not going to come in contact with many people that will say that they hate God. But the majority of the people hate God. And you can push them to the limit to show them that they hate God. They're just like the prodigal son, which is called rebellion. We rebel against God, just as this son rebelled against his father's rules. And he, and he said, Lord, Father, give me what is mine. Well, it really wasn't his. It was his father's. He said, this is my inheritance. Give me. But still the father had the right to whether give it to him or not. He was more or less saying to the father, I don't love you. I will not submit to you. I want to do my own desires and live in this world as I please. Give me all the benefits. And then what did he do? Wasted it on himself. Now third, we see that Jesus joins the love of God with the love of neighbor. 
there in verse 31. There are certain places in the Old Testament where God urged man and commanded man to love him. And then there's other places in the Old Testament where God urged man to love his neighbor as himself. But never in the history of mankind in the Old Testament were these two joined together. Jesus is the one that combines these two here in this verse to magnify the way that God has commanded this. He isn't quoting a verse from the Old Testament that puts these two together. But here Jesus is legislating concerning the greatest commandment on the basis of His own independent authority. He had the authority to bring these two verses together because He is Lord. No rabbi had ever said that the center and the sum of the whole law was to love God and to love others. So this is the first time that Jesus, or that it happens in Scripture by Jesus. Now again, Jesus doesn't hesitate to add love your neighbor to love God. He was simply completing the duty of the first commandment, which naturally leads to the duty of the second commandment. It overflows from our love for God for love for others. We cannot claim to love God and not love our fellow man. For loving God will manifest itself in loving others. Again, John tells us that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother. So we see that John supports what Jesus is saying here in this particular passage. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, We have the story of the lawyer, a scribe, asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And and again, Jesus tells him, love God and love your neighbor. And remember what the lawyer asked him, children? He asked him a question, well, who is my neighbor? And what's the story or the parable that Jesus gives us or gives him? It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now remember as your Sunday school teachers have taught you, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like one another. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And here Jesus was saying, He's your neighbor, love Him. Which was a despicable thought to the Jew. And what Jesus was showing him, until you have that kind of love, you don't love God. Only when you love Your neighbor doesn't reveal that you truly love God. And he told him, he said, do this and you have eternal life. Now, what was Jesus pointing out? He was pointing out that one who truly is saved loves others. So he will naturally love others. And we are to do good to those who God brings into our life, even those who we would consider as our enemies. And of course, we cannot do that in our natural ability. No, 
Only by the grace of God are we able to love our enemies and do good to them. Jeff Thomas says, These words of Jesus continue to give impact to the new covenant moving ahead from Jerusalem to Judea and even Samaria. The gospel is on the move. It is going out to all men, to all nations. He continues and he says, Loving the God, loving God and loving your fellow man is a message of centrifugal energy going out, going out of the tiny temple, going to the mainstream of history, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you see what he's saying? That this love of God, this love of our fellow man is the gospel. Spreading to all nations, sharing the gospel. Why do we share the gospel with someone? Because we love their soul. We want to see their soul saved. I was talking to a pastor friend yesterday. And he was sharing with me how he was concerned that his church was not interested in reaching the lost. He said, I've preached numerous sermons and there's been no conviction to whether they're interested in reaching that small community that he's in. Well, what is that revealing? And I texted him back. I said, what it's revealing to you is that they really don't understand who God is And have a love for God to where they will love their fellow man. So it's important to emphasize the greatness of God. The greatness of salvation so that they might understand that they must go to the lost with this God and this great salvation. So the greatest commandment is twofold. Love God and love your neighbor. And then fourthly, describe, affirms that Jesus' answer was correct there in verses 32 and 33 when he responds to Jesus and says, Well said, teacher. It can actually be translated, Beautiful teacher. In other words, this is marvelous is what he's saying. He commends Jesus for speaking the truth. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't need the approval of men. But such approval attests to the religious establishment of that day that Jesus was right on target, that Jesus was solid, that Jesus was biblical. And such will be used as evidence against those who rejected Jesus of that day. Here is one of their own, a a scribe, a lawyer testifying that Jesus spoke the truth, that Jesus understood the Scriptures, that Jesus understood who God was and how man was to love God and how man was to love his fellow man. So it's proven that Jesus was far from being the apostate enemy of Moses. That's what they were trying to say that he was. But instead, he totally agreed with Moses. Now, this scribe sees how the moral law is superior to the civil and the ceremonial law. Because he says, 
is more than all the whole burnt offering and sacrifice. There were actually those who held that the sacrifice was the greatest. In other words, giving a sacrifice, they thought, was more important than loving God and loving your fellow man. Remember when Saul disobeyed, King Saul disobeyed, by offering sacrifice and Samuel came and Samuel spoke to King Saul and he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of the ram. Again, we must see that there's a right order in doing what the Lord commands. Love always precedes obedience. And Jesus Christ had laid down the great law of loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and explaining that loving Him with understanding as those who know what abundant reasons we have to love Him. I mean, love to God is an intelligent love. As you read the Scriptures and you study, as I've already mentioned, who God is, how great and how powerful He is, how sovereign He is, how He controls all things, how He's ordained all things, when you meditate upon the greatness of God, you can't help but stand in awe of Him. So therefore, it's an intellectual love. So we must love Him with all of our understanding of who He is. Our rational power and faculties must be set toward God. And then fifthly, the scribe is encouraged by Jesus. There in verse 34b, when He says... You are not far from the kingdom of God. See, Jesus understood that this particular scribe, this particular Pharisee was not your typical Pharisee. He was different. This guy was on the right path. He understood some truth. And he was discovering greater truth in this conversation that he was having with Jesus. But he also needed to see who stood in front of him. He needed to see that this was God incarnate in front of him. He was so close, but I had not yet got there. He was on the right track, but he was not yet in the kingdom. I mean, being close but not in can be very disappointing. How many times in your life have you been close but did not make it? Some of you know yesterday, my son-in-law ran his first marathon seeking to qualify for the Boston Marathon. You had to run it in three hours in five minutes. He ran it three hours and 17 minutes. So close, but yet not in. First place in his division, age group. 
but still not in. Didn't qualify for the Boston Marathon. I can't help but think of all those that are mentioned in Matthew 7 verses 22 and 23 who thought that they were in but weren't. We are not told what happened to this scribe. I wish we were. I hope we see this guy in heaven. But we don't know because Scripture doesn't answer that question. But we do know about those in Matthew chapter 7, those who trusted in what they did. They're not in heaven. It's not what you trust in what you do, it's what you trust in what Christ did and has accomplished. Now don't you think it's important that we reflect upon the most important question and answer that's given in this passage? I mean, what does it mean to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? This isn't four different ways that we are to love God. This this is an expression that is called a pleoism. What is that? Well, I had to look it up. It's different ways of looking at the same reality so that nothing is left out. In other words, it's using more words than really are necessary to convey a meaning. Some of you may be thinking about about my sermon. It's saying that God desires every aspect of your being to be involved in loving Him. It takes all of you to love all of God. You cannot love God half-heartedly. You cannot love Jesus as your Savior and not as your Lord, as some people try to teach. That's totally contrary to what Scripture teaches. He must be Lord of your life if He is Savior of your life. Look at it kind of like this, a house. You don't honor God by allowing God simply in the main room. Houses used to have what we called living room. Today, most houses don't have living rooms anymore. You have what we call a great room. You walk in, there's a big room. You know, we had a living room. Well, the living room is where you always allowed your guests to come in, not let them see the rest of the house, right? Well, that's what a lot of people try to do with God. I'll let you in the house, but, but you can only have the living room. No, God wants all of it. He wants the bedrooms. He wants the bathrooms. He wants the closet. He wants everything, every part of your being. He wants to be honored in every aspect in the house. He demands the entire house to be His. Doug Kelly, who was professor of theology at Reformed Theological Seminary when I was there. He, he shares a story of one of the Sunday school teachers coming to him one day, and, and the Sunday school teacher was sharing what one of the little boys said in his Sunday school class. Parents, you need to be aware of that. Children can say some interesting things to their Sunday school teachers. <laughs> Children are very honest. It's some of the parents knew what the children said in Sunday school, they might not let them come to Sunday school anymore. But don't do that. 
they need to come to Sunday school. But anyway, this little boy told the Sunday school teacher that God was the boss in his house. Now that's good. This kid, this child, saw how important God was in his home. My question, do your children see that? Would your children respond to their Sunday school teacher and say, God is the boss at our house? Or would they say, Mama is? Or Daddy is? God must be boss. That's what God wants to be. So a simple answer is that God must be the supreme object of our love and devotion. God must be first in our heart. Nothing else can come before God. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, and yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This means that following Jesus often introduces uncertainty. It can bring pain. It can bring sorrow in the family relationship. It may be expelled, you may be even expelled from your family for following Jesus. Rusty Boland, when he was here, he shared some of those situations there in Senegal, Africa. Where men have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior and they've been expelled from their family. But what they've done is showed that they love God more than their family. Do you know what God requires of you? He requires that you are totally devoted to Him above everything and with everything that you are as a human being. That you love God with your affections. And your affections must be set upon God so that there are no rivals. God must be your chief happiness. Your chief delight. Your heart rivals in Him above everything else. That's one reason why you would look forward to worship. Because you know that He desires your worship. And when you worship Him, it gives you a satisfaction in your own life. Your greatest desire is to please Him foremost, because that is the chief end of man. You're willing to sacrifice anything, all of yourself, at His will. Puritan John Howell said... If you go all day without one inclination of soul toward God, no thought of Him, no design to please Him, to serve Him, or to glorify Him, if this is your habitual temperament, that usual course of life, and you call this love, you may as well call water fire and fire water. 
You see what he's saying? He's saying it's so contrary to what the Bible is saying to not think of God, not to meditate upon God. If that's your habitual habit, temperament, then it's totally contrary to what God's Word says. Paul puts it like this. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Second, what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? To love God means that we love everything that reflects God. And that which reflects God most is our fellow man who bears the image of God. So all true love in this life must be grounded foremost in that we love God. And to love anything more than God is idolatry. That includes ourself, that includes our family, that includes our wife, that includes our neighbor, that includes our job, anything. Now some go to minister to others out of humanitarianism. They're not sent by God. They just have a desire to go to minister to others. Here's what Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians 13, 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. See, we're talking about a love that flows from God through us to others. And if we're not ministering to others in that manner, then it profits us nothing. Thirdly, what does this love look like? It looks like the kind of love that you have for yourself. No one has to tell you to love yourself. That's something that we naturally have, is a love for ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about the self-love that the world promotes. I'm talking about a biblical love for yourself. John, 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I was going to read to you this morning what John Piper says in his Appendix 3 in Loving Your Fellow Man. If you have time this afternoon, if you have that copy of Desiring God, read that. It it emphasized the love that we are to have for our fellow man, just as what John says there in 1 John 3, 17. But you know who we usually do good to? Those we like, right? Right? How often have we done something good to somebody that we don't really know or, matter of fact, don't really like? We don't do it very often, do we? And that way we'd say we're just like the Pharisees. That's who they did good to. Only the Jews. They weren't about to do good to someone outside the Jewish group. But Jesus has something to say about this. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 6 beginning with verse 33. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit 
is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hopefully for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the highest, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. So Jesus clearly points out what our responsibility is in loving our fellow man. In Matthew's account of this same teaching that we have here in Mark in Matthew twenty-two forty, at the end Jesus says, On these commandments, two commandments, hang all the law and prophets. And this is why they're the greatest commandments, because all of the other laws hang on these two particular commandments. All of God's commandments find their reason in these two principles, to love God and to love man. When you love God, you fulfill the first four commandments. He will be your God. You will have no other God. You will not make any image or idol. You will cherish His name and not profane it. You will give Him all that He requires. You will give Him worship. You will give Him the Lord's Day. You will give Him your time. You will give Him the tithe. You will give Him your talents, your gifts, your relationship. You will give Him everything because He is your Lord. In keeping the second table of the law, you will love others as yourself. You will honor and respect your parents. You will love life and seek to protect life. You will respect your marriage and others' marriage. You won't seek to steal the spouse of another marriage. You won't steal. You won't lie. You will not covet the things that someone else has. All the laws hang on these two great commandments. Remember what Jesus said when he was asked, What do I do to have eternal life? He responded, What does the law say? And he basically quoted our passage that we've looked at this morning. And then at the end he says, Do this and you will live. Now what do you think God should do to those who do not love Him and do not love His commandments. What do you think? What should God do to those who do not love Him and do not love what He commands? John Murray, the great professor at Westminster said, For those who do not love the Lord... Damnation is the only inevitable alternative. Damnation is the only inevitable alternative. Is he right? 
Most certainly. For us to not love God, who is our creator, who has loved us and lavished upon us blessing after blessing after blessing in common grace, and to not love him is the greatest sin that we can commit. Why do you think that we should be accepted by God whom we do not desire to love or keep His commandments? To not love God is what makes the devil the devil. Do you understand that? To not love God is what makes the devil the devil. He rebelled against God. God had loved the devil. God had shown grace to him. And he raised up against God. And as a result, was cast out of heaven. Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. John Wesley wrote, Love so amazing, love so divine, demands your soul, your life, your all. You cannot love God moderately. The only Positive response to God is to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have to present your body as a living sacrifice to Him. Now, I must be honest. As I studied this passage, it was very convicting. Why? Because I know that I don't love God as I ought to love God. I don't love God the way that God has commanded me to love Him. And I don't love others as He has commanded me to love them. But yet we will never get to heaven without this kind of love. But there is one. There is one who has loved God all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Only one. And that's Christ himself. And if he has become your Lord and Savior and your heart has been changed, he has put a desire in your heart to love in this manner. And He gives us the strength to love in this manner. Without a change of heart, you will never love God. You will never love others as commandment. And you will never get into heaven. So Jesus asked you and me this morning, Do you love me? That is the crucial thing. And there is hope. There is the basic reconciliation 
There is the possibility of new life because of a new heart. The living God wants to know if you love Him. It is an extraordinary question that we must answer. He needs nothing. He doesn't need your love. But He asks for your love. And He will remain the most lovable being in the universe whether you love Him or not. Yet He commands, if you love Him, He does this in order that you will be loved. I close with this story. A man was traveling to Bath, England, and sitting opposite of him was a mother and and her little daughter. And the man delighted in talking to the little daughter, reading to the little daughter, telling her stories, entertaining her, and and immediately they, they became friends. And as they arrived at Bath, the little girl looked up to the man and he said, she said, do you love Jesus? He didn't, he didn't understand at first what she had asked, so, so she repeated the question and, and she said, Do you love Jesus? And the man stammered and he blushed and, and he said goodbye to her and her mother, but he could not forget that question. Do you love Jesus? It continued to reverberate in his mind. And the Holy Spirit drove it into his heart. He couldn't forget the question, do you love Jesus? He went to bed that night with that on his mind, do you love Jesus? The question wouldn't go away the next morning when he he woke up, it was there again, do you love Jesus? He would even repeat it to himself out loud throughout the day. And there'd be times when people would say, what did you say? He said, oh, I'm just just thinking what a question a little girl asked me. Five years later, he's walking through part of Bath that he normally rarely visits. And he, and he bumped into a lady coming out of the house, and to his surprise, it was this lady that he had seen five years earlier there on the coach. And he recognized her as the mother of the little girl, and he said, hello. He says, I don't suppose you remember me, but five years ago, you and I were on a coach with your little girl. And she said, yes, I, I recognize you. I, I remember you. Come in. So he went into the house. He said, Do you remember that your daughter asked me a question as we were getting out of the carriage? She said, Yes, indeed I do. Well, how is she? Can I, can I see her? And the woman looked away in tears and said, I'm sorry. She's in heaven. But come and and let me show you her room.
And she took him to her room, and, and there in her room was her Bible and her books that she loved to read and her toys and her dolls. And the mother said, that's all that is left of my sweet Letty. And he said to her, no, that is not all that she left. I am left. I owe her my soul. I was an unbeliever. When she asked me that question, do I love Jesus? I loved the world. I, I lived a bad life. But she asked me that question and I could not forget it. And since that time I have been changed and I'm not the man that I was. I am now God's man. And I can answer the question. Don't say that all Liddy has left is gone, for I am here. Out of the mouths of babes. May God be pleased to do the same. As you hear the question, do you love Jesus? May He drive it into your heart and bring conviction of sin today and give you a new heart so that you will love God. Let us pray. Father and our God, we thank you that you are a loving God. And you have created us for the very purpose of loving you. And we pray, Father, that you would cause us to love you in the manner that you have commanded us to. Forgive us, Father for not loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Forgive us for not loving our brothers, our neighbor, as ourself. Father, I pray for those this morning who have never responded to the offer of Christ, that today would be the day that they would fall in love with Jesus. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.